0: Be interesting to see if you to ask yourself or ask friends of yours how they'd answer that question, but it's probably worth me before we get into that just framing where we are in the context of the series. This is week four now of seven that we're doing in this slightly unusual style, um, beginning with these questions that people are asking rather than just starting as normal with with the Bible or something. But where we are so far is week one. We began with the question, "How do you know?" And started looking really, how does knowledge work? How do people decide what to believe? And where we landed really was, we decide what to believe on the basis of evidence and the best explanation of the evidence, rather than trying to prove things always scientifically or through maths or whatever. And then week two, we looked at how did we get here? And looked at origins and cosmology and the galaxies and the like. And I guess at the end of week two, we were really saying, God is plausible. Belief in God is plausible. I think it's actually a better explanation of the existence of the world as it is than the no-God version of the story, but it's certainly possible, certainly plausible. And then week three, Phil did a great job last week saying, if God is possible, then miracles are possible, right? If you believe in God, then you must have a possibility of belief in miracles. That doesn't prove that every miracle story is true, but it does, I think, you can't have... There is a God who made everything who is all-powerful, but he can't do these things. That, isn't, that wouldn't really work. If God is possible, miracles are possible. And we're going to leave that thought hanging for a couple of weeks and then return to it in a couple of weeks when it will become really important in what Steve shares in a couple of weeks' time because it's when we get to more Christian claims about the world, miracles are very important. For this week, what we're going to do is go over to the dark side and ask the question, What's wrong with the world? What is wrong with the world? And I thought that video was fascinating. And each week I've thought those answers are really interesting and enlightening. And I've asked that question, What's wrong with the world? dozens and dozens of times. And if you go out onto the streets of London as we did, but you could do the same and just doorstep people or interview people with a camera, just clipboard or something, you'll find that the answers they give to the question, What's wrong with the world? fall into almost entirely into three categories, one of which is a kind of slightly sillier category, but it's okay, it's not bad, but it's just not their real answer. But almost all of which will fall into two big ones. The silly answer that you might sometimes get is people will just start quoting recent things in the news. So you say, what's wrong with the world? And they say, Donald Trump, matter of fact, right? Good example. Um, and I think some of us would agree. Many of us would probably would agree. But, at the, but if he then said, but hang on, are you saying that if Donald Trump no longer existed, the world would be free of suffering? They would probably admit that the answer was no. There was a problem even before the birth of Donald Trump and equivalent of whatever other answers you might find. So that, you, some people do that. And then when you push them on it, they would say, no, ser- more seriously, the problem with the world is And then they would give various kinds of examples which would fall almost entirely into two big buckets. Bucket number one would be what you might call natural evil. That is, things which are wrong with the world, whether or not any human beings uh, did anything wrong. Just natural evil, part of the world. So, hurricanes, tsunamis, miscarriages, cot deaths, leukemia, cancer, malaria, AIDS... Those sorts of things, huge, tragic events that happen in the world around us all the time. Some in this room are dealing with the consequences of some things like that as we speak. People are going to come up with a ready list of problems like that. These things are wrong with the world. And the Christian says, yes, they are. The other kind of answer you'd get would fall into another bucket, which would be of human evil. So evil that is there because human beings are there. And this would be things, I guess, like... War, torture, slavery, injustice, broken marriages, religious fundamentalism, drunk driving, famine, oppression, abuse, domestic violence, homelessness, many, many issues like that. And again, many of us in this room are living with or have lived with consequences of things of that nature. So if you said, what's wrong with the world? You, will get, you might get some people say, it's the Tories or it's whatever. But most of the time, you dig behind the immediate news-based answer. And you'll find people will say, really, there is natural evil and there is human evil and they're both bad. And what obviously, people might not use those words, but the examples they give will probably fit into one of those two buckets. And of course, that's what happened on the video as well. And they might give you a mixture of, of, a, bit, of a bit of both. And... You might expect me, I suppose, as a a sort of Christian preacher who's got to defend God somewhere to stand back and say, well, people think this is what's wrong with the world, but actually what's wrong with the world is something else. I'm not going to do that at all. I think as a Christian, I would validate every single one of those answers and say, you're right. That is what's wrong with the world. That is exactly what a Christian believes is wrong with the world. And that's the whole point. Christians are not people who are trying to defend the world as it is and say, nope, move along, nothing to see here, nothing wrong with it. Christians are those who know, I hope, more than anybody how broken and messed up the world is. And there are three things about those answers that we've just heard that are actually really helpful and insightful when helping us deal with questions of truth and meaning and justice and redemption and origins. Three interesting things about those answers. Human evil natural evil if you like. The first interesting thing is that nobody says nothing, nobody says nothing. Even the guy on the video who said, for me, nothing, immediately afterwards said, for everybody else, everything. Right? People, nobody thinks the world is perfect. It's like a proverb. Oh, we're not in a perfect world. In a perfect world, this may be, but no, we're not... In everybody knows that the world is wrong in some way and that in itself, I think, is very interesting. You want to ask the question, why? Given that all of the things we notice are wrong have always been there, as far as humans have been around. There's always been wars. There's always been hurricanes. There's always been death and suffering. Why do we notice and say it's wrong? Because we do, and we're right. But why? So I saw this through the lens of children recently, which really helped me. So my son Zeke is seven and he sort of sees the world in quite literal terms, I think you'd probably say, as a little boy. And uh, a bit of context for this, he's very into Peter Rabbit and the Lion King at the moment. So animals and kind of eating, um, which is sort of plays in, into what I'm about to say. And in one day, we had a couple of brilliant questions from him at both ends of the day. So in the morning, he is, he's just, i don't even, it wasn't even in context, he just suddenly said, how do rabbits get put into pies? Which is, like, that's a difficult one, right? Because bear in mind, a little boy is like, he's on the side of the rabbit. He doesn't really realize yet that we, I mean, I don't eat rabbit particularly, but not for principal reasons, but I'm certainly, I'm on the side of Mr. McGregor in Peter Rabbit, as far as, you know what I mean? You, you are, right? As a human being, if you eat meat. So we have that question in the morning, and then in the evening, so my grandmother, so his great-grandmother, who we call Gigi, she died last year. There was a funeral. He was aware she died. He didn't really know what it meant. Um... But he's also been watching The Lion King. And so in the evening of the same day, morning question, do rabbits get, how do rabbits get put in pies? Evening question, did the hyenas eat Gigi? Was his question like, uh, no, no, hyenas don't live here. And oh gosh, and we've got to try and explain it. There's a, a kind of matter of factness and sort of familiarity and ease of dealing with the fact that things die and even people die that is a little unusual as an adult to hear. And one of my questions is, why don't we do that? My best example was my nephew, Charlie. This is going to make it sound like all our family do is talk about death all the time. But that happens to be the subject of the message, so just bear that in mind. But my nephew, Charlie, is two or three at the time. He's now ten. He's two or three. And my wife, Rachel, is looking after him, sitting on a sofa, and they're watching David Attenborough, Life of Mammals. And it's one of those things where the big cats, the lions, the pride of lions are gathered... And then they're racing through across the savanna to the zebras, and you you root for the zebra, of course you do, because they're the underdog. They're running away. They're going, run, run, you crazy zebra, run! They're just galloping away, and the lion's going dum, dum 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 dum, chasing, 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 and then the lion leaps through the air, and claws, and then teeth, and then rah! And the entire pride ripped the zebra to pieces, and there's blood everywhere. And Rachel is just wincing, thinking, "How is my sister going to forgive me for letting her son see this?" And she's like, ah, dying inside. And she looks down, and this three-year-old blonde boy just looks up at her and goes "Uh uh-oh and carries on watching like what's for lunch he doesn't think there's anything wrong with the fact that this he doesn't feel the empathy there but he also doesn't seem to be aware that there's anything wrong with the fact that strong things kill weak things it's way way of life Uh uh-oh circle of life that's what we do we just get on with it and my question is why don't we do that why don't we look at strong things killing weak things and think, "Uh oh." circle of life now you might if it was a lion but you wouldn't if it was a Nazi why don't you why don't we look at the Holocaust and say oh, strong people kill weaker people why don't we think that way about the Holocaust or about the Rwandan genocide or about slavery why we don't and we're right and if you met somebody who did you would you would think there was something wrong with the mental health probably because you would think this isn't right you're not supposed to shrug your shoulders at that abuse of power but why is my question If it's always been here, if as long as humans have been around, there has been suffering and pain and abuse and death, why do we find it surprising? Why do we say it's wrong? This is what C.S. Lewis said about it. It is as strange as if a fish were repeatedly surprised at the wetness of water. And this would be strange indeed. Unless, of course, the fish were destined one day to become a land animal. So C.S. Lewis's comment is, when you find things that are always part of human experience to be surprising or wrong, it points to you, does it not? That there is a future you have in which those things will not be part of it. Does it not show that there's something in you that realizes this is not the way the world should be and in fact one day will be? Now, in my experience as a pastor and a writer, I found that a lot of people use the problem of evil as an argument against Christian belief. It's probably the most common one. argument against belief in God. And personally, I don't think the argument logically quite works, even though I get its emotional pull. I really do. I feel its emotional pull myself. But logically, I don't think it quite works. And the reason is because the argument kind of goes, um, a loving God would not allow evil. There is evil, therefore there isn't a loving God. But actually what's missed out is the sort of middle step here, whereas what's really being said is, a loving God would not allow evil without a good reason. There is not a good reason because I can't think of one. Therefore, there is no God. And it's that middle step that is the problem. Because the reality is that if you and I are not God, I would expect, in fact, no, I would be certain that there are some things that he would know about the world that you and I would not know. And therefore, even if there were somehow a reason for some of these awful things to exist, I wouldn't necessarily be the guy to ask about what that reason was. Which is why when people say to me, why is there suffering? I always say, I don't know. Because I'm not that guy. I'm not the guy who knows why. God will know why. I don't know why. And it's not my place to try and guess necessarily. So we have a big golden retriever in my house. His name is Zindel. He's a very large retriever, so he's literally oversized, actually. His back is too long. It's a big, big thing. And uh, if, if Rachel, my wife, is looking for the dog and she doesn't know where he is, is he in the house? Did we leave him tied to a shop, as we did recently? Uh, let's not publicize that too much, except for on the internet and to hundreds of people. But we've got a dog. Have we got him? Is he in the house? Is he not? Leave him. It, maybe he's in the conservatory. She shouts down to me, Andrew, could you just check in the conservatory and see if Zindel is in there? and I look in the conservatory, and I can't see him, I can with great confidence say, no, he's not here. Because if he was there, I would be able to see him. But now let's say, instead of saying, is Zindel in the conservatory, she says, Andrew, could you check and see, are there any midges in the conservatory? You know those little flying beasts that sit in clouds on summer's evenings? Are there any midges in the conservatory? And I go to the conservatory, and I can't see one. What is my correct response? I don't know. I don't know if there I can't see any, but then I wouldn't be able to see any even if there were. So I I'll have to admit, I've looked around, I can't see one, but that doesn't mean there isn't one, it just means I can't see them. And actually in parts of North America, midges are called noceums, which is nice and American and evocative, isn't it? So a more comic example of the same thing, the comedian Bill Murray, some of you may know Bill Murray, he tweeted a couple of years back, there is literally no way of knowing how many chameleons are in your house. Stop and think about that for a minute. That's going to weird you out for a while. Ooh, could be a chameleon right now on the keyboard, but I wouldn't be able to see it. Well, it's quite a funny way of making the point. But the, the thing is, you see, there might be lots of things, lots of reasons why a particular tragedy was allowed by God to take place, but I don't know what it is, and I'm not going to try and guess. Actually, for me, that's why logically it doesn't follow to say, because there is evil, there is no God. And if anything, the boot is slightly on the other foot. Because, in other words, I think that the existence of evil is in fact a reason to believe in God for a very simple reason. If there were no God, there would be no basis for calling anything evil in the first place. Why? Because I've got no basis for declaring something to be right, wrong, true, false, evil, good. All there is a basis for is saying, I wouldn't like that to happen to me. But I could... But at the end of the day, I could not look at the Holocaust and say, that's evil. I couldn't look at Ebola, for that matter, and say, that's evil. All I could do would be to say, I would prefer that didn't happen to me. But I can't denounce it from any basis other than simply preference. I can't say that's wrong. And if I was in a society where a large number of people wanted to oppress a small number of people, as has often happened, many of us are from countries and cultures where that has happened, I've got no basis to condemn it. If I don't believe in God, if ultimately I don't think there is a God who is the foundation of true and false and right and wrong and good and evil, I don't have a reason to say that is wrong, it is unjust, it is evil. I can say, uh oh, circle of life. It's just what happens. I would have to react to the injustices many of us have or historically faced by shrugging my shoulders and acknowledging, well, it just happens sometimes. And I don't, and it's right that I don't. And the reason that I don't is because I know that ultimately there is something wrong with the world. And that points to the fact that there is a God who is able to say what is right and what is wrong and is not simply a sum total of preferences. So I think that's the first interesting thing about the answers you get. Nobody says nothing. The second interesting thing is, when you ask what's wrong with the world, is that the answers you get, human evil and natural evil, amount to exactly the same answers that you find in Christianity. That's very interesting to me. See, when people talk, people are saying human evil, natural evil, and then examples. When they talk about human evil, they are basically talking about exactly what Christians mean by sin. That's what human evil is. That's a very good definition, actually, of sin. Sin is human evil. It is people failing to love God, failing to love their neighbor. That's what sin is. Yeah, it's human evil. And then when people talk about natural evil, they are talking about the problem that Christians have always referred to as the problem of death. That's what they're talking about. When people say, what's wrong with the world is hurricanes and diseases or whatever, I know that they don't actually mean hurricanes. They mean death because there is a hurricane taking place probably right now at the South Pole, and nobody cares, except for the emperor penguins who are finding it tough in there. But everybody else going, that's not evil. That's just strong winds Antarctica right now is a far more oppressive environment than what anybody is living in anywhere in the world. And we don't mind, because it's not the nature that's the evil, it's the fact that human beings die from it that is evil. Do you see what I mean? So when people say hurricanes, and the same is true for others, volcanoes, earthquakes, even diseases, a disease strikes the rabbit population in northern Australia, nobody cares. A disease strikes people, everybody cares. And that's because the thing we're really saying is not hurricanes or disease, the thing we're really objecting to is death, and rightly so. So when you hear the lists that people make, and your friends make, and you make, you are basically saying the problem with the world is sin and death, to which the Christian says, that's exactly right. Look at this quotation. This is from Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, and it's just a wonderful statement of what is wrong and what Christ is coming to save and to, and to restore. We get the, get the quote from 1 Corinthians 15 up? When the perishable, that means the corruptible form of our current physical life, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and mortal puts on immortality, then, this is where Paul has been building for his entire letter, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Or as a friend of mine likes to translate it, you're not stinging, you're not stinging, you're not stinging anymore. The sting of death is sin, And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Christianity's greatest apostle, climaxing his, some would say, his greatest chapter. And he builds it to the point that the moment creation is waiting for is the moment when sin and death get splattered, completely destroyed. That's the Christian hope. And so, when I hear people on the video, or people I've talked to in coffee shops, or out in the streets... Saying, the problem with the world is this and this. I go, that's exactly what Christians believe. And that's wonderful. Jews and Christians have been saying exactly what you're saying for thousands of years. We agree with you that that's what's wrong. And that's a good place to start, actually. The only difference, and I suppose this is a difference, is that when a lot of people talk about sin or evil, about human evil, they might think of it as something which is something other people do. And one or two of the answers on the video were a little like that. There are bad people who do this. I call this... I'm sorry to have a sideswipe here at the Daily Mail. Um, It may not be the last time it happens. But the Daily Mail School of Ethics, which is really, look, there are bad people. Look at this bad man. He did something bad. You, dear reader, are not a bad person. You're a good person. So we will send this bad man to jail or not let him in the country or whatever. Right? That sort of way of doing things. A lot of us have something, some residue of that. There are bad people and good people, and I'm one of the goodies. But actually... I've caused a huge amount of suffering myself. And if you look, take a cold, hard look into your own history, you'll probably realise you have too. Many people here do things, some of us daily, that cause suffering to other people. And if we don't do them daily, we certainly have done them. And they cause great harm, some of them. And I continue to do some of those, not on purpose, but I continue to do some of those things as a Christian, as a Christian pastor. So I, I'm not someone who believe I, I, I can't, as a Christian, accept that evil is something other people do and not me. In fact, that's at the heart of the Christian message, that the sting of death is sin, and we've got to get rid of it all, including that which is in me. This is how um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was a Nobel Prize-winning Russian writer, who was a captain in the Red Army in the Second World War, and then got sent to the Gulag by Stalin. In other words, He's seen more evil probably up close than almost any of us. This is how he described, if you like, the view of the self that I'm talking about here. And he's right. This is a very Christian view. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own soul? Who indeed? Nobody. The line dividing good and evil runs down the middle of every human being. Put differently, what's wrong with the world? I am. Now this is a little heavy, and you're probably going, I'm really glad I came today. Great, let's talk about death and evil and why the whole world is terrible There is an answer. There is a solution. But for those who are finding it heavy going, I just thought a a comic clip might be good just to lighten the mood. This is a clip from Mitchell and Webb, if you know David Mitchell and Robert Webb, um, and their little sketch show. I just find it's quite a nice statement of what Solzhenitsyn was really saying, and it's perhaps a slightly pithier way of saying the same thing. So we will just play this little video. Very well. They're coming. Now we'll see how these Russians deal with a crack SS division. (laughs) Uh. Hans? Have courage, my friend. Yeah. Uh, Hans, I've just noticed something. These communists are all cowards. Have you looked at our caps recently? Our caps? The badges on our caps. H- have you looked at them? What? No. A bit? They've got skulls on them. <laughs> hmm? Have you noticed that our caps have actually got little pictures of skulls on them? <laughs> I don't, uh... Hands. are we the baddies? <laughs> Which is effectively what Alexander Solzhenitsyn is saying. And it's effectively what you get if you read Genesis 3. You find yourself reading it going, hang on are we the baddies? I was led to believe that the problem with the world was all out there, but maybe at a Christian level, you would say, no, maybe maybe it's in here as well. Maybe the thing that's wrong with him or her is also wrong with me. That's what the false story is about. But broadly, that answer, what's wrong with the world is basically sin and death. That's an incredibly Christian answer. So I said at the start of this message, there are three interesting things about the sorts of answers people give to the question, what's wrong with the world? Interesting thing number one was they never say nothing, which shows that we, that we know there's a problem. Interesting thing number two is that the answers they do give are variants on sin and death, which is a fundamentally very Christian answer. Interesting thing number three, and this is where the hope comes from, is that those two answers together point forward to a solution. Or you might even say, a gospel. Because if if what's wrong with the world is basically human evil, sin, and natural evil, death, and if we don't want the world to be like this and know it shouldn't be, which is the first point, then we are, all of us, somewhere in our hearts, whether we call it this or not, we are looking for a hope that perhaps one day the sin and death that currently plagues the world will be dealt with once and for all, and that we will be able to live the other side of it. That actually that's going on in the hearts of the people on that video, even if they've never thought about the claims of Christianity in their lives. It's actually going on in the hearts of people in this room, whether we believe the Christian message or not. We are all in that sense saying, this world is broken because of sin and death, and I'm looking for a day when it isn't, and that's what I hope is true. Even if that's not quite until now the way I would have put it. And we're actually looking for both sin and death to be dealt with which is important to note because, you see, if you, like many branches of science, are trying to get rid of death, prolong life, which is a noble pursuit, you're trying to get rid of death, but you don't deal with sin, ultimately, all you do is you make people live longer miserably, Yeah, which in itself is not going to solve the world's problems. On the other hand, if you try and deal with sin and you do nothing about death, which is what a lot of religious behaviour is trying to do, actually, deal with morality but without fixing the problem of death, then you have a world in which people are nicer, but they're still struck by pain and grief and bereavement and tragedy all the time, even though they are. It's only if you are able to present a message in which both sin and death are dealt with, that you could have anything approaching what you might call a solution or indeed a gospel. And that's exactly what the Christian message is that Christians are pointing forward to a, a solution, a gospel, an announcement of news that God has done something, and we're not going to get too far ahead of ourselves, but if you're at all familiar with Christianity, you'll know what it is, but that God has done something that has swallowed up both sin and death at the same time. He has managed to engage both of the world's problems in such a way as to defeat them and allow us to live in the good of that victory on the other side. And that, were it to be true, and I'm not saying you can prove it from what we've said today, But were that to be true, it would be, would it not, the solution that our hearts had always longed for. That's what the Christian message purports to be. It's what we claim. And I think it's encouraging that the way people in London diagnose the problem with the world is exactly the same way, in broad terms, as the way Jesus did. I think that's a good start when it comes to thinking about what kind of hope people might have and where they might satisfy it. On the night he was betrayed... Jesus has a meal with his friends in which he, without ever saying these words, in which he promises to resolve both of those problems. So he's sitting and having a meal with his friends and he's talking about his death, which is coming up in the next 18 or so hours. And he says, take this and eat it, take this and drink it. This represents my body, which is going to be smashed and pulped, and my blood, which is going to be poured all over the place for the forgiveness of sins. And this is a new covenant I'm making. What, he, what that means is a reference to an Old Testament book in Jeremiah 31, where he's saying, this. this what I'm doing now means that God is going to both forgive your sins, and he's going to put his spirit, or he's like his very self, into you, so you are going to be empowered to live different kinds of lives. And he's going to do that and forgive your sins at the same time. In other words, Jesus is saying, what I'm doing in, through this meal, what we symbolize as we eat it, is the fact that, My death is going to deal with the problem of sin once and for all. Oh, and by the way, I'm not going to drink wine again until I drink it again with you in the kingdom of the Father, he says. That's an odd phrase, and often, well, many of us miss it. And what he's saying is, look, the other side, in the kingdom of the Father, one day, death will have been dealt with altogether. What I'm going to do is going to mean that you and I are going to meet again after I've died. And we're going to raise our glasses and clink and say cheers, because what I have done on behalf of the Father is to abolish the power of death as well. And that double whammy, I'm dealing with sin and dealing with death, is embodied in that final meal he gave them which we're going to celebrate in just a moment. Sins will be forgiven. I, Jesus, I will be raised, and so will you. The sting of death is sin, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this meal means. And so as we take it in a few moments, when we do, if you believe this, do it in remembrance of him. We're just going to take a few questions now. How many have we got in the mix, roughly? Three. Three. Okay, that's good. Are we in the last days, or has the world always been this bad? Um, Yes and yes, Uh, (laughs) which may not be quite the answer you wanted. I'll I'll expand a a moment on that. The last days, I think, in the Bible is, is a phrase that, I mean, the most powerful way of putting it for me is what Peter does on the day of Pentecost, where Peter. So this is the day, this big day for Christians, where the Holy Spirit, the person of God, is poured out on human beings and where everybody, male, female, slave, free, Jew, Gentile, all of us receive the, the Spirit of God. And what Peter does is he's explaining what's going on and seeing all of these people speaking in other languages and understanding and these miracles. Peter says this is what was prophesied in the, in the Bible by Joel, in Joel 2. And this, this is what it says, In the last days I'll pour out my Spirit. So I think Peter thinks, and by the way, I think Paul agrees in 1 Corinthians and elsewhere, that we are, that the age between the coming of the Spirit, Pentecost, and the return of Jesus is what the Bible calls the last days. That's what I think that phrase means in Scripture to the apostles. So then, or has the world always been this bad? It's not really or, I would say. I think we are in the last days. But I don't think that means the world is getting steadily, dramatically worse. I think what you tend to find in the Bible, uh, the the picture that I like is in Jesus' parable, where he says a man goes out and scatters seed and it falls, uh, and then an enemy comes in and sows weeds among them. And the wheat and the weeds grow up together. And so the farmer goes, hey, I'll cut it all down. And then somebody says, the voice of God in the story, I think, it represents, says, no, 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 leave them to grow together. We'll wait until the harvest. And when the harvest comes which represents the return of Jesus, I think, will sort it all out. The wheat will go here, the weeds will go there. In other words, both the good and the bad are getting bigger and stronger in the world. I actually think that's probably the way to think about what you see on the news. I think we have been able to achieve enormous amounts as a human race and seen a huge amount of good. We've also seen bad increase. Technology is a good example, isn't it? What you can do for good with the internet. The number of people who are now able to access, for instance, Christian scripture because of the internet, versus the number of people who use it for pornography. And you think, actually, both the good and the bad have got stronger in the last 10 years through the internet, or 20. So that would be how I would look at that kind of question. What's up next? Where does evil originate from? Easy peasy. Um, I, I, think, I actually think the Bible could answer that question. If it, it, it's never actually tackled directly, where does evil originate from? The answer is... Mm, But I think there are, in some ways, three types of answer the Bible gives. And you have to understand the relationship between the three answers. There is a sense, and I want to be very careful here, but there is a sense in which the answer is God. In that, God created the world. And therefore, in some ways, the existence of anything evil is only possible because God made a world in which beings could choose to be evil. Now, God is not responsible for those choices. God is not the guy who... God, God is not to blame for those choices or anything like that. That's really clear in the Bible. But I think there is a sense in which you say, you made this world and there is now evil in it. There is a sense in which that originates with God's decision to create the world. I, I think that's meaningful. Um, but that's not what the Bible tends to do. The Bible tends to go, are we the baddies? And apply actually human choices and say, the vast majority of places in scripture you find this looked at, you find human beings have turned their back on God and decided to do something else. And so you have human beings responsibility. And you also have the responsibility, thirdly, of demonic beings, or like the devil, the Satan, and so on. A lot of people in London today don't believe or claim not to believe in anything like that. But actually, the supernatural powers of evil are a reality the Bible's very comfortable with, and just says, "Yeah, you've got to believe in this." Is I absolutely believe in angels and demons, and the Bible's really clear about that. Just like that's actually there's another group of agency here, which is nothing like as powerful as God, and themselves are created beings de- deriving their power from God. If you like, in some they've obviously taken it and distorted and abused it, but they are created by God. But then ultimately, there is a relationship between those three, which is, then takes a whole book the size of the Bible to relate the three and say, really, God is, God is not to blame, but he's ultimately good, but he's also ultimately the creator. And human beings are to blame, but we're not the only show in town. And the demons are to blame, but they can't force you to do something that you aren't already leaning to do. So there's a complex answer, but those, I think those three are all in the mix. Off the back of this preach, how can we explain your arguments to someone who doesn't believe in God? By argument, effectively in the course of I, this would be much quicker if I'd just didn't done this at the start, and then just we could have had 20 minutes just hanging out and chatting, right? What I'm saying is, what's wrong with the world, sin and death? And that points forward to a solution which we're going to look at next week. And I think that whether people who don't believe in God at all would ultimately they might not use the word sin and death, but I think they'd agree with the kinds of examples we've given of what's wrong. And I think if you poll 20 people you know, say what's wrong with the world, you get, and you get a list of all of their answers, you'll find that almost all of those answers will say, basically, humans do stuff that is bad, and the world has death in it, which is the Christian answer from beginning to end, isn't it? Sin and death. So in a sense, that's all I've said. I've just said it with some stories and some jokes um but that that's a kind of demeaning way of describing the last half hour i hope but that's that's really all i'm trying to say and i think in a sense this just points forward to next week in which we say what's the solution then Uh, which we'll be able to look at a bit more let me just pray for us father we thank you so much that you have in jesus acted not just so as to say yeah this world's a mess isn't it what do i do But this world is a mess and I am stepping into it to make it right. I'm going to come in and take on human flesh. I'm going to heal and forgive sin. I'm going to empower people to be transformed. I'm going to raise the dead to life. I'm going to come alive myself on the third day and break the power of sin and death and evil once and for all. And because you have, we have hope that one day we will live in a world where there will be no such question what's wrong with the world because everyone will say nothing. And everybody will look and honor the one at the center of the throne and worship him and acknowledge you have done well you have made all things good you have healed everything and we love you father in anticipation of that day we praise you and thank you amen Amen.